welcome back to the Prairie Pod. Happy Prairie Tuesday, everybody. Mike? Happy Prairie Tuesday, everybody. It is Tuesday. I lose track of time. Um, <laughs> it's easy to lose track of time when you're on a prairie exploring, Mike. When, when you or love when your you job. Don't have a watch. Yeah, you just, every day is great, you know? It is great. You know, I like most of my job. I'll say that. I like a lot of it. I guess I should say, yeah, I like a lot of it. But I mostly like when I'm outside. There are parts of it that are really hard. Not talking to me or with a computer? That's not one of the highlights? I mean, I think I'm going to, I'm going to plead the fifth. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? I'm, I'm so pumped about today's episode. I know it's a big focus of the pod and you like have been purposefully keeping me in the dark on this subject. You don't want me to know. I have purposely been keeping you in the dark. It's like a big focus of the podcast. And you guys. You can lead a horse to water. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, (laughs) I am am pumped and glad you're letting me in on your secrets finally. Oh, my gosh. On this particular subject. (laughs) What Mike is talking about is that today's episode is all about the legacy of restoration in Minnesota. We're going to talk about common mistakes, lessened, learned, lessons, 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 learned. There you go. Yeah, it's hard to speak sometimes. It is hard. So we have two very special guests with us today who have been actively working to evaluate reconstructions, which Mike talks about monitoring all the time. And I talk about the importance of writing down what you do so that somebody later can actually know, hey, this prairie looks great. What did you do? Uh... (laughs) We need to be able to answer that question so that we have a better understanding of what works and what doesn't, especially when we're talking about such a complex ecological system. We're never going to know it all. The prairie has mysteries. Um, I was I wanted something that rhymed with mysteries, like mysteries abound, but I wanted like mysteries, miracles. <laughs> you are a, you are a poet, Megan. I wanted another M word, is what I'm saying. But fine, there's just mysteries unsolved. There you go. I'm pretty sure that's a show. Anyway, you're going to be hearing lots of very basic questions out of me. So I hope you guys are prepared for that. Um, well, let's introduce our guests. Yeah, yes. You know, we should do that. Oh, also, key tagline for everybody listening. Don't be afraid to try new things. We learn from failure. That is part of the goal. If you try something and it doesn't work out how you thought it would, guess what? We change. We adapt. We've been talking about this all season. Life is an exercise in adaptation and change, and the very prairie landscape that we so love itself has to be allowed to go through change we cannot control everything so with that i'm going to get off of my soapbox and actually i'm going to stay on it because that's what this podcast you know we got to talk prairie and that's the soapbox anyway so i'm going to introduce gina we're going to start with you hi I'm Gina Quirum, and I work for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources with the Legacy Fund Restoration Evaluation Program. Nice. And last but certainly not least, our very special guest who has a world of information to share with us. Sue, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sue Galatowicz. I'm on the faculty of the University of Minnesota. I'm in the Department of Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. Nice. And we are so honored to have you both here with us today. Yeah, welcome Uh, to We've already determined that I had Sue uh, in in her landscape ecology class 22 years ago. So sorry, Sue, I'm aging both of us here. So we go way back. 
You know, what was his grade? That's what I want to know. Did he, was he like a, a passing D or like more like an A? <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Let's just say, uh, at least I'm hoping she doesn't remember. So I think your <laughs> general counsel prevents me from answering that question. There you go. Good answer. Good answer, Sue. <laughs> Nicely done. Well played. So we're going to start out just getting a little bit of a, a sense of you, who you are, and the work that you've done through your life. And we will, we're going to start with you, Sue. I keep wanting to call you Dr. Sue because it just feels um, so right. I was raised in the South, so it feels strange not to call, not to call you Dr. Sue, but I'm going to. I'm going to do my best to <laughs> just address you as Sue. So describe your role in prairie conservation and talk to us a little bit about kind of the journey through it. You know, how did you get into this field, your mentors, your family members, anything funny about what shaped you and why, what led you to this, you know, career of science and restoration? Well, you know, it was really kind of an accident that I think I ended up in, in restoration. Um, I grew up in Northern Illinois in the vicinity of some really great prairies. And as a child, I had absolutely no awareness of them. Um, I was really aware of how polluted everything was around me. And I was mostly really invested in trying to get out of Illinois and head someplace that I perceived was way more wonderful, which I decided was Minnesota. And that's where I ended up going to college. And I uh, landed in Winona. Um, and so my awareness of prairies, um, you know, and really much ecological at all, really didn't get started until I was in college. Um, and I went to St. Mary's in Winona, which is nestled in the bluffs of the Mississippi River, and I spent a lot of time um, hiking around on goat prairies and found those pretty fascinating, and that sort of wandering around goat prairies on my own eventually developed um, over time into something a little bit more, and then I landed a Nature Conservancy internship shortly after um, I was done with my bachelor's degree, and I was based at Weaver Dunes. Um, right after the Nature Conservancy purchased that property. And that's a sand prairie along the Mississippi River. And I was hooked then. I was just excited about prairies um, and really not too, um, you know, too trapped into restoration at that point. Um, I did my master's research there on vegetation and land use and got to know some of the, the, uh, the families who had farmed that area for many years and and so that was really, really interesting. Um, after I finished my master's, I moved to Colorado and I worked for the Nature Conservancy there, as well as Colorado Department of Natural Resources in their natural areas program. And through that, um, I was involved in a lot of grassland surveys and trying to establish protection agreements for many different kinds of grasslands, short grass prairie, mixed grass prairie, Great Basin and Montane grasslands, as well as these kind of interesting tall grass prairies that are kind of right up against the, the, the mountain front on the front range. Um, and that's really where I got involved in restoration because one of the things that we needed to do was figure out how to, you know, replace ecosystems that were being lost to, you know, any number of things, mines and ski areas and all kinds of things. And it became really clear to me then that really nobody knew really much of what was 
how to do restoration for very many kinds of ecosystems. But what I did know is that really the kind of the epicenter of the world for restoration was in the Midwest. And so I decided to head back to the Midwest for my PhD, um, to Iowa State, because I figured that in Iowa, there was really not much left there. So that's probably a good place to work on restoration. Um, And so I did my PhD work on prairie pothole restoration. And then after that, onward back to Minnesota, uh, where I joined the faculty, and I've been focused on ecological restoration, both as a research, you know, kind of enterprise, as well as working with lots of professionals and trying to figure out how to advance practice. And that's really kind of the the long and short of it. I guess I was always attracted to, um, I guess, fixing up degraded places after my, you know, kind of childhood in, um, in Northern Illinois in locations that really uh, definitely needed some help. So um, fixing ecosystems up, I guess, would would have some deep roots for me. Oh, very nicely done. Would have some deep roots. Way to go. That was not lost on me. <laughs> <laughs> fixing ecosystems up, I think, is something that I find also very attractive. So hello, kindred spirit. Um, I just <laughs> really, really enjoy that too. Gina, we're going to pass the baton here, the virtual baton to you to give us a little bit of a sense of you and how you came here also. Thank you. Um, so I, my journey started in Minnesota, where it is currently continuing. Um, I grew up near uh, Mankato, Minnesota, and spent a lot of time outside. And I think you know, from a really young age, I was attracted to this idea of fixing up outdoor spaces. I would drag my poor dad down the river collecting garbage, um, literally until the canoe was full. And then we would take it home and they'd have to figure out what to do with it. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, from a really early age, I was interested in this idea of the fact that humans are interacting with these landscapes and changing them. And that there are definitely some things we're doing that are maybe not the best. And we could spend some time and energy figuring out how to make them healthier. So that's that that was an interest going into college. And I did a lot of volunteer work around restorations, you know, pulled my fair share of buckthorn and cut and burned it and got my got my hands dirty in that way. Um, And then after college, I ran a restoration program in Tacoma, Washington for a year. And it was a it was a super fun challenge, but I realized I spent almost all of my time trying to manage invasive species with really ineffective tools. We were just doing the same thing over and over, and they were coming back. Um, and I just kept thinking there has to be a better way. So I went back to grad school and got my PhD at the University of Minnesota studying um, purple loosestrife and purple loosestrife control methods um, and kind of the short term and long term. Uh, ways we can make those more effective. So that was that was a really that was an awesome experience. I learned a lot about the intersection of academic research and agency work and kind of on the ground nonprofit work because I partnered with the DNR and some local nonprofits to think about the questions they had around invasive species management. Um, 
And so when the opportunity came up to come back to the DNR and work on the Legacy Fund Restoration Evaluation Program and and really start gathering those stories of, of what's working and how do we do the best for our landscapes in Minnesota, um, I couldn't say no. So here I am. Cool. Thank you, Gina. Yeah, um, let's... Sue, I think we let's start off with picking your brain, if that's okay, but and, and hearing about some of your vast experience and knowledge with prairies. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you see as the history of prairie restoration, especially for people like me that are largely ignorant of, of, of the subject, since, as I said earlier, Meg has been keeping me in the dark on purpose about this. But uh, yeah, just the history of prairie restoration in Minnesota and how, that, how it's changed over time in, in your career. Yeah, you know, it's it's really it's really kind of amazing no matter where you go in the world. People know about about restoration, you know, the initiatives, the the fact that we've here in this part of the world have really been the sort of pioneers of restoration and, mm-hmm. and when people hear that I'm from Minnesota, like they know this is where you know, where we have lots of people who have you know, experience working on seeding. They know this is where Truex drills were, you know, developed first off. Um, and so while the legacy certainly um, at the the Wisconsin Arboretum and, you know, Aldo Leopold is huge in terms of starting restoration in the 30s, um, you know, really where I think the story becomes very Minnesota focused is really probably in the late 70s where you've got, you know, Ron Bowen starting Prairie Restorations as a, you know, a small company, but at that point, very unique in terms of a a seed vendor, um, you know, and seed installer, and then uh, John Truex uh, developing um, a drill, and they were testing these things out at what is now the really big Crowhaston Prairie on the, the northwest side of the metro here in the Twin Cities. And so at that point, you know, if you think late 70s, early 80s, what you've got are some of the early kinds of restorations that were coming out of Wisconsin, really small scale hand seeding, hand collecting of seed and hand distributing of seed, you know, really postage stamp sized restorations. And then a scaling up, you know, once we had things like uh, seed drills designed for prairies um, and more seed availability, people were able to do, you know, 10, 20, 30, you know, even a half section or so. And so, you know, you say 30 years ago, a restoration that was a couple hundred acres was a really big deal. I mean, that was really kind of the cutting edge scale. So when I think of the main change across my 30 years or so, I would say the the size of of what we do is is now more routinely large. Um, And so while people certainly do lots of small prairies, you know, behind schools or in neighborhoods or, you know, wherever it makes sense, it's, it's now not such a big deal to have uh, prairie restorations that are a few hundred acres. That's pretty routine. You know, the big deals now are, you know, more than 10,000 acres. Those are the ones that are really, people are, are really kind of awestruck at the places like Glacial Ridge and, and other, other places. And so the scale of what we do is larger. And that's possible because the network, our network of seed vendors and installers is better developed, our, you know, our basically plants trade in native plants is just so much more developed. We have more and better equipment of all kinds, including those seed drills that were pioneered in Minnesota now take various forms. We have more people who know how to restore prairies. You know, we've got 
you know, people who spent decades um, in the trade, but also just many, many people who've, you know, come up, um, you know, through through um, consulting firms and services and nurseries and so forth. There's, you know, we have uh, we have both, you know, professional capacity that just is way more than it used to be. And we really have what I would say is a bona fide restoration economy in the state. You know, people who are providing services and and products that really drive this whole thing. And I think over that same arc of time, that restoration economy has been primed by a couple of things. Um, you know, the legislation, the policy that created the Environmental um, uh, Trust Fund, as well, you know, as mm-hmm. they'll just, excuse me, the Legislative and Citizens Commission on Minnesota Resources, which has funded hundreds and hundreds of restorations in the past you know, 30 years. And now more recently, the Legacy Act, which I'm sure Gina will talk about more since she's working specifically on that and other habitat restoration initiatives at the federal and local level, as well as the private sector. So we have, you know, really a restoration economy and a networking here that is is really kind of unparalleled and I think um, gives rise to all the different uh, work that's going on. And that also gives rise to a greater variety of restorations that are happening now that happened, you know, a few decades ago. Different kinds of ecosystems and attempts to restore places that are in really bad shape and need a lot of work. Uh, typically, or especially spe- uh, areas that need lots of invasive species attention, or even the removal of contamination in, say, urban areas or modification of landform. You know, nobody monkeyed much around with that successfully, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And that's also a function of having much greater professional capacity to do restoration in Minnesota. I love that overview. It was it was so good. Like it was comprehensive. It hit all the main points. You talked about restoration economy, which is something that we we just sort of take for granted and we don't really ever explain the evolution of that. And then I got to tell you, as you were talking, something that kind of was noodling around in my little brain here, or my big brain, depending on the day, was when you're talking about John Truax, so funny story for you. This restoration community, I'm always struck by how connected we are, as we should be, because if we're going to connect a prairie landscape, we've got to connect with each other. See what I did there? Uh, (laughs) We really do. But John Truax, on my very first restoration project at Purdue University during my grad research, came down and we were testing the new model of Truax drills at that time. That made me think of how small this restoration community actually is. That as you're talking about those drills being made in Minnesota, obviously I'm in West Lafayette, Indiana at Purdue, and we're also demoing the same Truax drill there because we are facing the same tall grass prairie restoration challenges. How do we do that? How do we build it back? So I just thought that was neat. Okay, so Sue, you literally wrote the book, multiple books on restoration. And so we have much that we can learn from you. And so I just kind of want you to walk us through, like, what do you think are the most important things we should know when approaching a prairie restoration? Well, you know, there's certainly lots of things, but I'll highlight three. Um, And some of this actually comes from evaluating uh, the LCCMR restoration projects. Um, and, uh, and so first of all, I would say projects that don't start well don't just necessarily get better over time. And so when practitioners say, well, 
you know, over time it'll probably be okay and nature will fix this. Maybe not. Um, sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you won't, but it's really important to take site preparation and those first steps um, seriously because, uh, you know, really many sites are degraded enough that invasive species will take hold. And if you don't have good colonization and establishment of the things that you spent money putting on the ground, it's not like anything is going to make that better over time. So projects that don't start well uh, don't plan on them necessarily getting better just because time has passed. Um, the second thing is, is ecosystem recovery takes time and it's not dictated by the, the length of your grant. Um, grants are typically two to three years if you've got some funding and the recovery of prairies and wetlands in Minnesota is you know, at least a 10 year process. And certainly for forests, it's much longer. And for things like peatlands, it's much longer than that even. So ecosystem recovery takes time. And what that means is that there needs to be some management and stewardship um, through that process of recovery before that ecosystem, that prairie or that wetland, has the capacity to have enough functioning to be able to more or less take care of itself. You know, regeneration, you know, establishment of future generations of species. And so uh, you don't need to be there with the same intensity as in the first few years, but uh, wandering off when the grant ends is usually a recipe for things uh, really not to go fully to recovery. And then thirdly, sites that are more degraded at the start of a restoration or are within highly degraded landscapes require a greater commitment of time and resources to achieve the desired ecosystem recovery. So you'll hear magical stories where people will have done a project and it will come back easily and it's not necessarily because they're all so awesome. It might be because they had a giant, wonderful prairie right next to them or were not in a, on a site that was particularly all that heavily degraded. But if you've, you've got to really evaluate just you know, what those starting conditions are and be honest about whether you've got the time and resources to take it on if it's a particularly challenging project. So I would say those three um, I think were would be at the top of my list in terms of important things to know. Those are perfect. Mike gets tired of me saying this, but I always say that prairie seeds aren't magic beans and we need to stop treating them like they are. If you don't make the investment in the land, if there's been destruction to the soils or something else, we've got to build that back up and not expect the prairie, oh, it's native, it'll figure it out. No. Yeah, you know, and the more we know about um, degraded sites, the more we understand that there are things like mycorrhizal associations that really are not functioning at the beginning. And because of that, those sites are really going to favor invasive species for longer than we really want them to. And so during that time and while those sort of, you know, relationships between microbes and, you know, and vascular plants are getting going again, uh, there's going to need to be a continued investment and management until we have, you know, situations that are, are going to require less of us. Megan, I, I, I don't get tired of your magic beans analogy. It is wonderful. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, so just a larger question for you, Sue. The, you know, I've, I've, I hear from Megan all the time, and I hear this from others too, that when it comes to all of our uh, prairie management approaches or techniques in the state, um, because we have less than 2% of our prairie left at this point, 
that reconstructions really are something that we have to emphasize. And it's, it's, you know, we've got, we've got other enhancement techniques for our existing prairies, which are certainly very important. But reconstructions are going to be key for us if we really want to uh, restore some of the functions that, that prairie is important for, including like wildlife habitat, which is, which is my bias as a wildlife biologist. But um, can you talk more about what, about uh, a larger scale approach, what we need to do as a state to move the needle on prairie conservation here. Um, if it's more prairie restorations, where we should be doing them, what kinds of places we should be doing them, for example. Um, any, any, any of those kinds of tips? Well, I think, you know, I think the Minnesota Prairie Plan is, is just such a great blueprint for rallying around and really thinking strategically about where those investments ought to be. And what's really great about the Prairie Plan is there's, there's sort of places in or across our entire sort of, you know, historic prairie region um, to make headway. You know, there's there's landscapes in southern Minnesota. There's landscapes in northwestern Minnesota. And so no matter where you are, you know, in the prairie landscape, there's a place not too far from you where you could, you know, really be part of 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 really you know implementing that prairie plan. And I guess I wish I would see more that's you know, kind of being uh, trumpeted to the public and more, you know, uh, more intentional, um, you know, sort of an outward face on that prairie uh, plan to the public. I think one thing that I love about the prairie plan and makes a lot of sense from an efficiency standpoint is there's an attention to the fact that we do have remnant prairies. And so, and so building off of those remnant prairies, because they do offer something to any of our prairie reconstructions, they offer seeds, they offer, you know, reservoirs of, of, of uh, prairie specialist species that will easily be able to move into those new reconstructions. So being able to expand off of our existing reserves and make those larger um, and and really kind of build from those, I think, is a real win-win from a standpoint of both the base recovery of the vegetation as well as offering, you know, something really important uh, to prairie specialist uh, wildlife species. And so, you know, and in climate change, I think as we go forward in climate change, I think the the if we can do more reconstructions in the vicinity of our native prairies, we'll be doing a good job buffering them from some of the, you know, stresses of climate change. And so I, you know, I would like to see more of our, you know, our natural areas and preserves uh, that our prairie, you know, have, you know, prairie reconstruction buffers around them uh, and make them more resilient too. So I think it's a win-win. Those are, those are excellent points. I, I make it and I are so happy that you mentioned the prairie plan because it's central to our work. And I think it's an, it's a really good point. I think that we don't think about enough that it ought to be more accessible and more advertised to the public. Um, I mean, we, we we work at Prairie Outreach. This what we're doing now is an example of it. But the Prairie Plan Underneath itself, the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Plan. <laughs> My yeah. God! So this podcast yeah. was born from the Prairie Plan. It's its baby, and so it, <laughs> it is part of that effort to make more known all of the energy that's happening around prairie 
in general, like both as a landscape, as an individual site, and as something that has lost so much. And so in order to hit that ecological function point, we are going to have to invest in reconstructions and building back. And what I took from what you said, Sue, was connectivity is very, very important. Yeah, connectivity in a, a landscape that's as fragmented as our prairie landscape is is really crucial for just a whole lot of reasons, you know, for animal movement, certainly, but even things like being able to get, you know, those mycorrhizae to be able to blow into the, you know, the new prairie reconstructions. We certainly don't know how to, you know, build all that back one piece at a time. And so I think that's critical. You know, I, I, I really hope that there can be more of a visibility to, you know, the prairie plan and, and progress towards achieving it. I think that would be you know, a great thing. Like right now, I, I don't know, we just finished the Minnesota's Natural Heritage book. And I, I really didn't find it easy to be able to figure out, do we have more reconstructed prairie right now in the state of Minnesota than we have native prairie? You know, a simple fact like that, or what's the total acreage of reconstructed prairie versus what's in the prairie plan? Like, are we 25% of the way there? Um, some real simple to grasp uh, metrics that would, you know, just make it more of a, a statewide um, point of pride to be to be accomplishing that plan. Absolutely. And I'm chuckling. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you as I'm chuckling because those very things are the things that we've been grappling with how we do when when all of our prairie work that we do truly is a partnership but because it's a partnership, it creates some unique challenges. You know, the DNR, for example, might track those acres. Well, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service might track them in a different system. And then there's SWCDs doing this work and there's landowners doing this work. And how do you funnel all that information into one central place so that we're really getting accurate records? And so that that is something and much of Mike's work in evaluating the success of the Prairie Plan. He has a couple pilot projects he's done funnel into it. But you're right. We need to do a better job of telling the story of all the work that we're doing collectively in the landscape. I'm going to shift us here to Gina. Gina, tell, talk, uh, talk us through the restoration evaluation program. What is it? How does it work? You know, how many restorations do you evaluate? You, you jokingly earlier said we're a two-person program. We just picked up the second person a few years ago, so we doubled in size. <laughs> Congratulations. Good job. T tell us a little bit how it all works and what the goals are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a program that has come out of the Legacy Fund in Minnesota. Um, so backing up just a little, in 2008, Minnesotans voted to increase their own sales tax during a recession um, and to earmark that money specifically for preserving Minnesota's legacy. And a huge part of that was our natural resource legacy and improving water quality, doing restorations, and hundreds of millions of dollars um, have gone into restorations out of these legacy funds. In 2012, a group of lawmakers got together and said, you know, this is, this is great. There's a lot of work happening. We can, we know how many acres are being restored, but we want to make sure that the projects being done are using the best available science and having the best outcomes for Minnesotans. So 
it's not enough to be doing the work. We want to be doing it well. And we want to be making an impact for the people who are paying for this stuff. So the um, there was a new part written into the legacy law and the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources and Board of Water and Soil Resources were tasked with evaluating these restorations, making sure that people are meeting their goals, um, you know, using good science, uh, identifying any problems people are having and, and thinking about how to um, improve as we continue to spend all this money on restorations in the state. So the agencies, DNR and Bowser, um, have two staff who go out to these sites with um, third-party experts and see what's happened. We talk to project managers, we gather the story, we look at you know, what seed mixes were used, what site prep was used. We get into a lot of the details and then take that information for individual projects back to our restoration evaluation panel, which is a group of six people who um, are experts in restorations in Minnesota, either because they've been doing them or researching them for decades. And I'm going to plug Sue here because she's actually been involved with this program from the very beginning. She is one of our panel members. Um, so she has, in her capacity as a panel member, looked at 200 different evaluations since 2012. Um, so they're not all prairie. There's a lot of non-prairie work happening in Minnesota, but um, a lot of them have been prairie because early on, especially, you know, I think people were capitalizing on things like the prairie plan, this, this structure that was in place and this restoration economy Sue was talking about that was building and really plugging in to use these dollars. Um, so we've looked at 200, but we look at about 40 a year, um, which is a lot of restorations. But to give you a sense, there's been about 6,000 different projects completed since 2012. So we're really still looking at a pretty small slice of them. Um, but there have been some recommendations that have come out, some really good stories and a lot of lessons learned um, over the past. I'm going to ask you about all of those lessons learned. <laughs> but first, I have a I have a I have a question really quickly. Yeah. I, I know you referenced the cost a little bit, like how much yeah. money we're spending on these reconstructions. And I, and I just want to make a make a point because this is something I get asked all the time. People come to me and they say, I want you to make me the best prairie ever. I want you to give me the best seed mix. It's going to be a pollinator, palooza out there. It's going to be magic. And my first question is, okay, what's your budget? And they usually say $200 an acre. And I go, it's not going to be a pollinator palooza. We're going to need to adjust. <laughs> like the, the point I want to make is that building something back that was built perfectly the first time costs money. There is an ecological and an economic cost to building prairie back. Mm -hmm. And there's also a benefit to doing that that is offset by that cost. But it's way easier to just <laughs> have the remnant first and not destroy it than to have to go back and try to rebuild it back. And because we're relying on 2% of an ecosystem to supply seed for everything that we're building back. And yep. And and for many, many, many other reasons, but those are just a few quick ones. Okay, Gina, tell us about some of those lessons learned. Yeah, for sure. Um, so one of the things that was emphasized really early on and continues to be a huge message from the program is we can't learn from what we're doing if we don't know what we did. 
We have to document what's been happening. And no, no one wants to talk about more documentation, right? Like no one who, maybe there's a couple people out there. I just haven't met them, but like no one goes back to the office and they're like, man, I wish I had another five forms to fill out tonight. Um, But if we go out to a prairie and we know it used to be, you know, row crop agriculture and it is pollinator palooza, that's awesome. But we don't know how to get more of that on the landscape if we don't know how someone did it. Um, So, you know, that's really one of the lessons is the value of that documentation. And we've seen examples where people are getting dividends back on their own documentation. They're getting additional funding because they're, they're able to tell their story so well. So, you know, it's, it's beneficial for learning lessons. It's beneficial for the programs. Um, and it's, it's the way that we're going to learn from each other, especially I'm, I'm going to go on, on one of my soapboxes about climate change. Um, people are trying lots of stuff right now. People, people are desperate for guidance about how to build climate resilient ecosystems and there's a lot of ideas um, and people are trying a variety of different things but unfortunately there's not super clear science to guide some of these decisions about exactly where seeds should be sourced from should we be getting them from further away should we be increasing you know the the range at which we look at where to get seeds there's there is some good guidance and information out there but the best way we're going to learn is by practitioners documenting what they're doing, why they did it, and how it worked. So we can keep doing the stuff that's working and not keep repeating the stuff that's not. Um, so documentation is is just such an important piece of this. Um, and I think, I think I'm going to pause there because I feel like I just gave three lessons under the heading of documentation. I feel like they were great lessons. Mike would call them adaptive. Like we, we talked about this in an earlier episode of the season, the how, not the cow, but where we talked about the importance of being able to adapt and what you're talking about with climate change is we have more questions than we have answers, which is true with much of our prairie work. We have, we know a lot more than we did, but we're going to have to keep learning to get better at it. Hopefully the learning will never stop as we get better at it, but we're going to have to be adaptive. Mm-hmm. And be flexible to change, especially changes that are somewhat out of our control, like climate change. Gina, the things you said about tracking, about being able to talk about, um, um, you know, when we look at something and, and find a success or a failure and having some knowledge about how we got there, that was wonderful. And and you did an excellent job of communicating that. You should do that full time, just communicating that message, uh, <laughs> more being sl- slightly facetious. Um, yeah, as far as specifics on what we're doing well and what we aren't, you know, Megan talks a lot <clears throat> about diversity mm-hmm. and the importance of diversity in our restorations. I know that's something that's in both you and Sue perhaps can comment on this. Are we, are we, when I say we, I mean, as a state, all the prairie practitioners in the state, are we doing a better job of planting diverse prairies? Is it enough? Uh, those kinds of questions. Can you can you answer any of those? Oh, I I'm not going to go down the road of is it enough because I want to say it's never enough, but that's not mm. probably the best answer. <laughs> um, you know, I think what we we've seen that there is more of an emphasis on diversity when we look at project goals for projects that we're evaluating. We're seeing um, 
diversity, um, species diversity, and things about pollinators and the diverse, you know, plants they need for their whole life cycle, not just a food source. And, and that is something that definitely has been more common in legacy funded restorations. Um, and, you know, it, as, as we talk to practitioners who have been doing this for decades and, and get their stories about what they've changed, a lot of the focus for prairie restoration has been on kind of moving away from this this idea of a wall of grass as the prairie restoration and and you know we'll we'll have practitioners take us to a restoration they've done and they're super excited about it and then they'll say you know do you have do you have 10 minutes let's go down the road and they'll take us to a wall of indian grass and big blue stem um and it's a huge challenge because it's so it's so densely populated by these these really strong species that they're struggling to get some of that diversity back into there. So I would say there has been a change. Um, Sue, do you think that's that's a fair assessment? Yeah, you know, I think some of the the issues with the grass-dominated, you know, really came up during the, the mid to late 80s during the Conservation Reserve Program because it was going in so fast and it was going in, you know, at a really sort of low rate of funding. So you have these big switchgrass fields. I think that one thing that's, you know, we have state standard mixes and they are really much better than a lot of other options, you know, that people might just try to kind of do on their own. And so those in some ways have been key to improving the quality of prairie restoration. One interesting aspect, though, is that if everybody were to follow those those state standard mixes, that would create more uniformity in your prairie conservation than would have existed historically. And that's not the intention of those state standard mixes by any stretch. But I think it's it's really important for there to be different kinds of goals in prairie restoration. So people will begin with those state standard mixes, but then say, yeah, we want this to be a pollinator palooza. And that means we're going to throw in a few more pounds per acre of forbs and we're going to, you know, maybe intercede some of our older restorations. And so I think being mindful of a good base quality like you get with state standard mixes, but then also really thinking about opportunities to have really interesting goals when you do restoration, prairie restoration, and then tuning, you know, your seed mixes to that and, you know, trying new things, as you guys have emphasized, uh, and keeping track of what you're doing. I think it's worth it to be wanting to strive more for more you know, more diversity um, in our prairie restorations, not because we're doing something bad, but because prairies are so amazing. They were very diverse. And um, and that's where we're at and sort of the state of the practice right now. We can go there now. You know, we're, we're good at what we're doing. Let's that would be one arena to do it even better. Gotcha. Absolutely. And other states are doing it differently. Like I, I talked to some, Gina and I did a field day together two years ago and uh, the folks from Iowa came up because we were right on the Minnesota border and they said something in our small group where they were like, well, yeah, well, we just plant like 150 species mixes, you know, most of the time when we're seeding our sites and everybody from Minnesota was like, what? Like, 
because it was just an incredible amount of diversity that they're able to get into their systems, which then led to this really rich, I would say, diverse conversation about, you know, how how do you do that? What are you doing, Iowa? Let's learn from each other. We're going to have Chris Helzer on later in the season and some of our prep conversations we've had with him. He's talking about seeding 200 species each time, and it's all about how we prioritize our our resources and our time to get to those points so that we can build that diversity in. And it's, it is complicated and it's going to involve stretching our brains. So I, I like what you said there. Okay. We've got to. Can I do one more point on that? You know, it's extent though. It's not kind of how many species you put seed. It's how many make it. Um, Oh yes. And because it can be a really expensive thing to put down a lot of seed. And if you're, you're not managing it or there's so it's so rare and there's so few of them that might not happen. You know, they might not establish. And so there has to be a bit of a balance there on spending all that money on those forbs, but then also paying attention to which ones actually can establish at the beginning point of a restoration. I don't think we know as much as we need to about that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing we'll get into later with later in the season with Chris Helzer, because he told me, uh, that was his second point. He was like, not only am I planting 200 species, but they are making it through time. And that's when I then was like, okay, now we got to chat. It's going to be longer yeah. than, than 45 minutes. We got a lot of questions. How are you doing that? Because you're absolutely right. It's there's a There's what you get initially, but how do you retain it through time? Okay, so really fast before we move to our next section, uh, Gina, can you just give us like three tips if you if you were limited to three what are three things that help make a project successful that you see as you're evaluating all of these restorations okay three things um partnerships partnerships with other practitioners partnerships with local seed vendors partnerships with local interest groups these landscapes are not just sitting out there by themselves they're part of a matrix in minnesota and if practitioners are partnering with everyone around them and and really thinking about what's worked, what hasn't, and what are the needs for the landscape as a whole, um, restorations seem to have a longer a longer lasting time and and do really well. Um, and I think another thing that um, is really a common theme for these successful restorations is going back to that restoration economy Sue was talking about having having skilled and trained practitioners who are experts in this, having people who know how to run the equipment, who have, who have done this work, um, it's, a, it's a particular skill set. And being able to tap into those people and to get the right people out to do the right piece of the restoration project is incredibly important. So you got to tell your stories. If you don't talk about what you've been doing, what's been working, share your successes, tell people why Prairie is valuable, get them out there, share share the prairie with everyone. Um, there's not going to be support for this work and it won't continue. That's great. Oh, share the prairie with everyone. Everyone. That is, that's my new life motto. Well, we have got to move to our next section. I could talk to both of you all day. You know, Mike, questionable, not sure. But I could definitely talk to Sue and Gina all day. <laughs> Just kidding, Mike. You know, I love talking to you. Likewise. You know. Let's to the literature! Science! This is the 
part of the podcast where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper, and we have multiple offerings for you today. Sue, take it away. Uh, let's see. Um, what I would recommend for, for further reading, um, we've, we recently, Julia Bonin and I recently uh, published a paper in, in Restoration Ecology that was based on an evaluation, a statewide evaluation of a whole bunch of restorations. It's called Predicting Restoration Outcomes Based on Organizational and Ecological Factors. And it goes into some of the themes that we talked about today, including what are the reasons you should um, keep good records um, and how many people are keeping good records or how many people aren't and what happens when people, uh, when organizations partner adequately versus not and uh, basically how important is organizational or organizational factors versus ecological ones um, in restoration success. So that would be, um, that would be my pick of something for you to follow up on. And then also um, the, the new edition of Minnesota's Natural Heritage is out, a whole chapter on prairies, and we added sections in every chapter um, about conservation and restoration. And so we go into the history of restoration uh, a bit uh, for every biome in Minnesota. Nice. I will check both those out. Thanks, Sue. Gina, what are your picks? So I couldn't help myself. I picked a paper about soil. Um, yes. Prairie soil. So there, this is a it's a really cool study that just came out um, out of Carleton College actually, um, and basically they're looking at the legacy of the benefits of restoring prairie. So over decades, how these prairies um, are sequestering and accumulating things like carbon and nitrogen and and building healthy soils back into Minnesota's systems. Um, and it was a, the, one of the reasons this paper was so neat is that sometimes it's really hard to find prairies that you can track over time. Um, and so people will often, you know, look at like one prairie that was put in five years ago and one that was put in 10 years ago, and they have to make a lot of assumptions about how it started. But the, these researchers really, they tracked the same prairies for 20 years and documented just how much carbon and nitrogen was going into that soil and how much healthier it was getting. So... I, I wanted to put in a plug for that paper and the value of soil because it's something we're learning more about all the time in prairies. Nice pun. Plug mm -hmm. on the soil paper. I wanted to put in a plug. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. it's, that to me, is, it's, that's very interesting uh, because so often, at least I and I think many people think about um, the, the soil being required for prairie, but you're, we're kind of, you're kind of, and the study has kind of switched it and it is saying that prairie is very important for the soil and for dri deriving those functional benefits out of soil. Um, so I like that. That's, that's a really good way to think about it. Mike, prairie is the beaver ecosystem. And what I mean by that is beavers, <laughs> like us, are the only other animal that manipulates the environment to suit itself. And prairies manipulate the literally the ground that they are growing in to suit themselves. They are the beaver. Wow. I like that. I'll remember that. Yeah. Good. I'm so glad. Put it on terms a wildlife biologist can understand. I like it. You're welcome. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Mike. Let's go take a hike at Carleton College and check out the... And, to, and check out the soils there. 
I'll do that if we can go get cupcakes at that cupcake place. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> once, again, once again, you're going to the desserts. There you go. Let's have a hike and a cupcake. I'm there with you, buddy. Well, we are so excited as we do when we get to this take a hike section each time to introduce you to some of your fabulous public lands. Congratulations. You're still a public landowner and we're so proud for you. And so Gina, lead us through a pick. Like what is one of your favorite public prairie places? Did you see public prairie places? (laughs) And why did you pick it? So I chose Ottawa Bluff. Um, It is down by St. Peter, Minnesota, St. Peter and Mankato area, and it's a nature conservancy property. Um, And I just have all these really great memories of not only learning so much about prairie ecology there um, early on in my career, but also dragging dozens of my friends out of bed in the morning in college to go cut buckthorn on the frozen prairie. and they they have a really robust volunteer program there to manage some of these these woody invasives that are encroaching. And I just I have so many great memories about you know working in that landscape and bringing people out there who would never have gone out there otherwise, and um, just connecting them to this really scenic, very beautiful bluff um, that is public land. All right, I've got to get there. That sounds cool, Gina. You do need to get there, Mike. Yeah, Very cool. And if there's a Indian burial mound there on the top of the bluff, and you can kind of stand and appreciate why it was placed there in the landscape. It's very moving. Cool. Thank, thanks, Gina. Sue, what, tell us about your pick. Well, my pick, I guess, is based on good memories as well. I'd pick Weaver Dunes, where I was a Nature Conservancy intern and did my master's degree. Um, what What's awesome about uh, Weaver Dunes is is just all the cool plants in that sand prairie and the 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 old ancient dunes and all the peculiar, you know, sand prairie, uh, sand prairie wildflowers that, that occur there. Um, and Blanding's turtles and, you know, raptors and all sorts of things. Uh, uh, and, uh, when we lived there, uh, my son used to sit on a sand, you know, in the sand prairie while I was collecting my data and he ate a whole lot of sand and he's still a biologist. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> And so, you know, it, it takes me back to, uh, to yeah, uh, you know, trying to achieve work-life balance as a, as a very young biologist. Um, yeah, go to Weaver Dunes. Uh, I like it in the springtime, especially, you know, all those Mayflowers. Weaver Dunes is a wonderful place. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. I have never been there. I need to get there. Maybe I should eat some sand because when we have been chatting with some soil scientists, they actually recommend it as a way to get some of our micronutrients. So maybe that's why your son is so super smart. Well, you know, uh, you know, super healthy. And so, yes, I say feed your kids sand from <laughs> Quick caveat, this is not a medical podcast. Please don't do any of this. At your own will, we are purely uh, prairie experts, not medical doctors. This has been just such a hoot. It's so much fun on the pod. 
Oh, next week, we're going to chat about the importance of prairie structure with a very special guest. If you were paying attention in this episode, we left some little clues for who that is. This person has never been on the podcast before, but we reference them all the time. They may have gotten the most Let Science article mentions. I don't know. But all we can tell you is we promise the episode is going to be swellzer. All right, you can find all the resources that we talked about today on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership, which is a function of the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Plan. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by Jed Beecher. It was awesome. Thanks so much, Gina and Sue. That was great. Yeah, thanks for having us. Unlock the Thank secrets you. of restorations finally. Megan wouldn't tell me anything, but you guys did. Thank you. <laughs>